You can be turning to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. While you're turning there, I don't have to say this very often, but it needs to be said every once in a while that please, uh, young people especially, but it's, it's good for adults to understand it as well. Somebody singing a special, you shouldn't be talking to one another. That's rude. That's just rude. So uh, young people, pay attention to that. Parents, if you'll pay attention. And uh, you know, it's one thing if young people sit together, I don't mind that so much, but when they can't just pay attention to what's going on up here. Uh, during the singing, we're worshiping the Lord. And when somebody else is singing, we're getting blessed by what God's given them. And when you talk and you're constantly turning toward one another and saying something, it becomes distracting to anybody that's near you, that sees you. And uh, you just need, you need to pay attention. You're not getting anything out of the service. That's how young people end up getting to hate being in church because it keeps them from talking more and more and they want to talk. But this is worship time, all right? That's just, uh, it has to be said once in a while. Our kids are good kids. We got a lot of good kids, but they forget. Good night, I'm 73. I forget from time to time. You know, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons too why I don't like iPads and phones uh, in the service, having them on. Because if you've got them on, I don't care if you, you can put a Bible on one, but that doesn't make you pay attention. Matter of fact, normally you pay attention to pictures and emails and other things that are coming in instead of paying attention to what's going on with the singing, with the preaching. It's worship time. Uh, it was so much easier when we didn't have all that stuff. People came to church and actually worshipped. Worshipped. And that is what we're here for, to worship. That's just good stuff. All right, good stuff. We'll remember it. It'll save a lot of problems in the future, okay? All right, well, let's read a couple verses before that. We're going to start actually in chapter 11, verse 31. Uh, the last two verses of, uh, of chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. It says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees, to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. 
And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south, and there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. And my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen, and he asses and men servants and maid servants, and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram, And said, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And Abram went up out of Egypt he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the south. I want to preach tonight on building a man of faith. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's absolutely amazing, Lord, if we were to sit down and meditate upon what you have done to us and with us through the years. How you have built us. And I'm not just talking about us as a church, but each of us individually. How you want us to be strong in the faith. How you bring situations into our lives to help build us. The expectations that you have of us and that you want from us. So Lord, I pray tonight that you'd use the word of God to challenge our hearts. To be surrendered to you. And Lord, we'll thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm one of those guys, I love biographies. Now, before I ever got saved, I still love biographies. I loved biographies of great men, especially for me back as a young person, the ball players. I mean, I could tell you an awful lot about a lot of ball players. I used to be able to. Of course, I've forgotten a lot of that by now. But I especially love the biographies of great Christians to see how God worked in their lives to make them what they became the things that he set before them, the things that he did, how they responded to what God was doing in their lives and what God ended up making out of people for his honor and glory. When you get to the story of Abraham, we not only have what we read about here mentioned a number of times, but we also, in the Old Testament, we also see it in the New Testament. 
recorded for us. Abraham, a very well-known character, of course, in the scripture, very, very important to the nation of Israel. Many wonderful things are said in the New Testament concerning Abraham. For instance, keep your hand here. Go over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And in this hall of faith chapter, in chapter 11, beginning at verse 8, the scripture says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should, after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. The heirs with, are with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So we have that statement. We also have recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, where it says, verses 2 through 5, The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Charon, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. Now we have other records, of course, of him as well. For instance, if you go over to Joshua chapter 24, we have Joshua after the children of Israel get into the land and basically subdue the land. He's reminding them of their responsibilities within this land that God had promised Abraham many years before. But in chapter 24, notice beginning in verse 2, where the scripture says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, that's who we read about in the latter part of chapter 11, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now we find Abraham is also mentioned both in the book of Galatians and also in the book of Romans that he is an example of salvation by grace through faith, where in chapter 15, after getting the promise of a son, the Bible says in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, what we get back in chapter 11 is God's first call to Abraham to leave Ur the Chaldees. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, he gives... Four things here. He says, get thee out of thy country. So he had to leave his country. And from thy kindred, he was to leave his relatives. And from thy father's house, he was to leave his father's house. And unto a land. In other words, it wasn't just leave Ur the Chaldees, go someplace else. But go to land that I will show thee of. That's the initial command that's given to him. And then he gets a promise, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now, think with me for just a second. When you read through passages like this, think about Abraham, and 
in what situation was he in? He did not have a written Bible. As a matter of fact, at this particular point, you understand the book of Genesis is written by Moses. And Moses comes along an awful lot of years later. So we don't know how God told him. Maybe it was an audible voice from heaven. Maybe God spoke to his heart and he's the only one that heard it. We don't know. But he doesn't have a Bible. And he's being told by God that he's to get up and he's to move and to go to a land that he's going to show him up. He tells him he's got to leave his relatives. He tells him he's, uh, he's got to not just leave his relatives, but even his immediate family, not his wife, of course, but even his immediate family, he was to leave them as well. And he gets up and he goes. Now, I personally believe if we were picking a salvation time in Abraham's life, it would not be when he left her of the Chaldees. It would be when he believed the promise of the son, because that's what Paul uses. That's what the Holy Spirit of God uses in the New Testament to prove his salvation. But regardless of that, it has to begin somewhere. Somewhere, God started out, here's what you need to do. I think about when we started actually seeking the Lord. I mean, I went to church so I could play softball at the church team, but I didn't start seeking the Lord when I went to church to play softball with the church team. I had to start going for a while, and God was using the Word of God on my heart, and I got to where I wanted to learn more. In other words, after the preacher preached the Word of God, and the Word of God began dealing with my heart, I started going with the purpose that, how can I know Him? How can I escape hell? How can I get heaven? And my understanding had to increase until that day in 1971 at the radio station after a half hour broadcast, I took Jesus Christ as my personal savior. And from that time on, there have been a lot of challenges since then from the Lord to do things. Well, and I'm sure in your life too, I'll guarantee in Brother Larry's life down here that there's a lot of decision he's had to make along the way. He can go back to initial decisions made in his Christian life. And then as God dealt with him about surrender, and uh, he ended up going off to Tennessee Temple as well, making that decision. There are just a lot of things that God brings about in your life to get you where he wants you. But I've had a Bible. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a church. He didn't have a pastor he could counsel with. He couldn't go to dad because, you see, dad wasn't even a saved man. He worshiped other gods. He couldn't go to other family members because his other family members worshiped other gods. I mean, this is an amazing step of faith to leave everything where you're at, to go to a place where you don't know any of the people and understand that those were very dangerous times. The only protection that you basically had was you being able to defend yourself. And I don't just mean individually, but against some of the uh, marauders that would have been in many parts of the world at that time. So he's given a challenge here. God did communicate with him. And thank God he followed. You know, sometimes I feel like we judge Bible characters on the basis of all that we know. When there were a lot of things they didn't know. Like, for instance, when I read the book of Job, I already know when I read the book of Job that Satan had come and accused the brethren. 
and that God chose Job as his champion in that argument. Job didn't know that. God didn't tell him. And when you start thinking of it like that, think about what he was going through. We're concerned about why when things happen to us. And yet, because we've got a full Bible, we've got some ideas why those things may be happening to us. He didn't have it. So when this command came along for him to leave, that he was to get out of his country, from his kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee up. Now, when God gives some tough choices like that, he's going to make some provisions to help you fulfill that. If you'll notice, it says in verse 31 of chapter 11, it says, And Terah, that's his father, and Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them. It doesn't say that Abram took Terah. It says Terah took Abram. Think about that. So God's helping him out. Evidently, dad's ready for the move. Dad's ready to go. His dad is not following the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord. He worshiped other gods, according to what Joshua says in Joshua 24. So he's helping Abram out to make this first decision to leave the land. But you remember, that's not all he said. He said, and from thy kindred and from thy father's house, he's with dad. All he's done is left the land at this point. That's it. He hasn't obeyed in the other things yet. So God told him to leave his nation. He was to separate from his family. And when, you, and when you come from unbelieving family, you realize some of the choices that you're going to have to make could create some problems. I remember, well, first of all, since I'm a first-generation Christian, most everything that we did after we got saved, none of our family understood any of it. And sometimes they're not very bashful about saying it as well. I can remember when God called me to preach. And we prayed about where to go. My pastor had catalogs from three different schools. Uh, the one that he had from Tennessee Temple I liked because they had a summer school and I could get done quicker. And so I felt peace about going there. And I remember announcing to my in-laws that we were going, at that time we only had Kathy. Uh, we hadn't even thought about Carrie yet. And um, I, I remember announcing to them, well, we're going to be moving. Where are you moving to? Well, we're moving to Chattanooga. God's called me to preach, and we're going to move to Chattanooga. Who do you know there? Nobody. Uh, where are you going to work? Don't have a clue. And we just put the house up for sale. It sold in a couple months, and then we were out of there. And a lot of these preachers like that can tell you very similar stories, same type of thing, happened in their lives. God gave them a call. They went, family members especially family members that were lost, sure didn't understand the move. And, you know, they, they kind of looked at us like, where is this nut taking our grandchild? But I understand that. They were lost. And I don't know why that, Brother Weeks, I don't know why that didn't seem like a bigger deal to me. I mean, I look back on it. Why would I do such a thing? But, you know, when... You're just in love with the Lord and God calls you to do something. It's just the right thing just to do it. Amen. And he'll take care of it. 
He took care of us. We sold our house. By the way, we had only been in the house for a few months. We had had the house built. We'd been in just in a few months. We sold it for exactly what we paid for. We got no money out of it whatsoever. So we didn't have a big bill when we went down there. Of course, the bill that would come about was school and all that. God just takes care of every bit of that along the way. And he went to Haran because of his father. But that's not the end of the story there. It says in verse 32, in the days of Terah were 200 and five years and Terah died in Haran. He leaves Haran. Because his dad dies. God's helping him out, isn't he? He's helping him move. But he doesn't leave his kindred, you see, because Lot is still with him. So he's down into the land now where God wanted to show him what he was going to give him, going to give his people. He's down into the land, but God's been working. He got Terah to lead him. It says Terah took him. Took Abram and took his wife and took Lot. He took him up there. Now Terah dies in Haran. And now Abraham's ready to go down into the promised land. When I was uh, a radio announcer, had many potential opportunities for sins. I mean, it's just amazing things God kept me out of. We worked with, I worked with a guy, an announcer at, uh, in Kalamazoo. Uh, at the rock station where I was an announcer. He was the president of the Students for a Democratic Society at Western Michigan University. And some of you older ones would know that the Students for a Democratic Society was a communist front group on the college campuses. I worked with that guy. This guy was a druggie. He was into all kinds of things. Just kind of a side story, by the way. I got a call one day. I, I wasn't saved yet. I was still lost. But I got a call one day from the FBI. And they said, uh, we want to talk to you. And they mentioned the guy's name. And so I said, fine. They came to the apartment where we were staying. And um, they showed me. I don't even know if I looked. You know, they flipped the thing and showed it back. Maybe they weren't from the FBI. Maybe they were something else. But evidently, this guy, of all things, president of the Students for a Democratic Society, a communist front group, and he had applied for a government job. And they were having to check him out. And so I said, well, you know, he seems to be a nice enough guy, but he is the head of the communist group on campus at Western Michigan University. Now, I don't know if he ever got the job or not. If it was today's administration, that would have been the shoe-in right there. He'd have gotten it. Back then, though, probably not the case. I, I love the biography of Dr. R.A. Torrey. Dr. R.A. Torrey was a young man who had a desire perhaps to preach the word of God even before he was saved. But he had gotten connected with the critical thinking, the, uh, hy- what's it called? Higher criticism. All I could think of was hypercriticism. But I guess that fits too, higher criticism. And he began to see how bankrupt all that thinking was. And he became just so disillusioned, he found himself sitting in a hotel room one night with a gun, thinking about ending his life because it all seemed so pointless. And then something that his Christian mother had said came to his mind. She had died just a while before that. And he realized that's not the way to go. There is hope in the scripture. 
and he got into the scripture and became what is known as the apostle of certainty and standing by the word of God. So we see God's provisions in the leading of the man of God. Secondly, God's promises in his will. Notice in verse 7 it says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. By the way, for any of you adults, young people, learn to let God speak to you through his word. Don't, don't sit back trying to con, conjure up some kind of voice where you can say you heard God, but get in the word of God and let God speak to you through his word. And it's amazing how many believers, how many missionaries, how many pastors that their surrender came to God when they heard a particular verse that was read in a message or quoted in a message that caught their heart and they said, that's it. This is what God wants me to do. And you can't shake him from it from that point on. They know that's the will of God because God gave that to them. And it keeps them faithful to the Lord. The promises of God are exciting. Seeing God work in the promises are exciting. Why would God give you extra promises? If you're not even trying to do his will. When we think about the will of God, too often all we think about is the where of the will of God. And the where is the least of the things you need to be concerned about. Because the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. If you are seeking him in all your ways, then he will direct your path to the place he wants you to be. So you can count on that. So you just trust him with that. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, for he delighteth in his way. He says, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. You see, God will lead you if you'll stay surrendered to what he wants you to do. When God called me to preach, like I said, we had to sell a house and just move. No job. I just figured God would take care of it. God would work it out. I didn't know how he was going to work it out. He worked it out. I mean, really, the only thing that I had done in life was be a radio announcer. Well, you know, Christian radio stations were kind of in short supply back then. There were some. So could I get a job? But I was going to work anyway, regardless of whether it be a radio station. Worked out that there was a radio station that was owned by a man who graduated from Tennessee Temple and hired either Temple graduates or students going to Tennessee Temple. It was a gospel radio station. And so it just worked out. I got in the right radio station, so that's the job that I worked. My wife had a job at a church as a secretary. The the Lord just took care of all that. And whatever it is God calls you to do, you can count on that. God will meet the need. By the way, notice what takes place here. It says in verse 7, And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. When you're in God's will, it really is easy to have fellowship with God. That altar becomes very, very special. I have to say at Bible college, to me, that was some of the very most exciting times of our lives. We didn't have much, but didn't need much, didn't care about much, man. We were serving God. We were learning tremendous truths in Bible college. I mean, the book was just opening up and men of God that were sharing its truths. I couldn't wait for the next class. 
And then I was preaching as well at, at chap, pastor, two different chapels while I was at Tennessee Temple. And so ministering all at the same time. We were busy as we could be. But we weren't in it to have days off. We were in it to just serve the Lord. And it was exciting. We didn't get involved. I didn't get involved in basketball games and all the different things that went on on campus. We lived off campus and we were so busy, we didn't have time for any of that stuff. About the only uh, students that got to know me at all were students that happened to be in the same class with me because uh, when I was out of class, I was, I was out working or serving the Lord, doing something. But God's promises and his will, second thing, first his provision, secondly his promises, and then his presence in the wanderings. For you look at verse 9, it says, And he removed from thence unto the mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Well, in verse 7, he's in the land. He builds an altar. Why would he move? Well, it's a big land, and he's trusting the leadership of the Lord to move him. God wants to show him the land, not just Bethel, not just Hai. God wants to show him the land. So there's nothing wrong with him moving around, and he's making sure of this one thing. That when he moves, he has another altar. And he has another altar. By the way, when you move, you ought to get in another church. You ought to be faithful in another church. I mean, no question about this. We go on vacation. We make sure we're in church. We're in Sunday school. We're in morning service. We're in evening service. We're just in church. I believe in being faithful to church. Now, sometimes you'll get in a church that seems to be dead in a doornail. But I'll tell you what, even if you get nothing while you're sitting there in that church, at least you're keeping your character. Once you lose your character, you're not worth much. But when you have a character of faithfulness to be there, when we make trips, we plan on church. We plan where we're going to go. I call churches to find out what time their services are. And making sure that they're having services. I know we had some people one day went over to Atlanta and uh, they had a church that they were going to go to that we knew of. And uh, so they went over there and they didn't call ahead. Come to find out the independent Baptist churches around Atlanta had had a big get together service on Tuesday night. And so they all canceled their Wednesday night services. And here they are in Atlanta. They can't find a church to go to. And they had to, sit, had to sit in the motel room, have their own church feeling as guilty as sin. I mean, you get used to being faithful to church every service when you're not there. Hey, when I'm sick and I've got to stay at home, I, I feel backslidden. And I realize when I'm sick, you don't want me here coughing on you and sneezing on you and that kind of thing. You don't want that. But still you feel backslidden when you're used to being in church. And if there's, there's something wrong with a Christian who can miss church and not feel bad about it. So I'm just saying, yeah, there are times you've got to miss, but at least feel bad about it, okay? <laughs> what we're seeing here, though, is in his moving, God is still present with him. His relationship with God is becoming more and more two-way. His presence has been special to him. But then look at verse 9. And Abraham journeyed. Going on still toward the south. He gets down in the Negev, in the very southern part below Beersheba. 
He gets down in that part of wilderness, and what's there? Not an altar, and there was a famine in the land. Think with me now. God's been leading him around. He's okay. He goes, builds an altar, moves again, builds an altar, goes down the Negev. That's still basically part of the land. But there, there's a famine. Now, doesn't it make sense if there is a famine here to go back where there wasn't a famine? Doesn't that make sense? If the land that he was just in, where he had the altars and he had the fellowship with God, there was no famine and it was good, it was right, it was in the land God was giving him. When he gets down to a place of south, and I don't know exactly where the border was on this one, but when he gets down there, now there's a famine. I'd say, all right, run back up to where the altar was, where you were close to God, where you were walking with God. Let God take care of you. But notice what he does. He says, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. That's not the land. That's not the land. That's a bad decision. That's a wrong decision. By the way, he gets down into Egypt. He doesn't build an altar in Egypt. Not only doesn't he build an altar in Egypt, but the first thing he thinks about is, you know, my wife's pretty good looking. Those Egyptians are going to like her. And probably one of those kings or Pharaoh himself is going to want her for their wives, and so they'll kill me. I need to talk her into lying about what we are. Now, the reality is she was his half-sister, but nevertheless, she was his wife. And so he says, hey, uh, listen, my life hangs on you right now. Tell the people you're my sister. She gets taken off into Pharaoh's house. Abram, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? I admit he doesn't have a Bible like we have. But even Joseph didn't have a Bible like we had. And yet when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he still did right. They may be down in Egypt, but you can do right. But when you're down in Egypt, when you're not where you're supposed to be, when you're out of the place of God's will, it's amazing the things your mind will start cooking up for your own protection instead of your walk with God. May I submit to you that our greatest protection is being in the will of God. That's a mistake, Abram. That's a mistake. No altar. Only famine. You'll remember when Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, Malon and Chilion, there was a famine in the land. And so they decided they'd go over to Moab. A famine in the land, they go to Moab. In Moab, Elimelech dies. Malon and Chilion, their two sons, die. When she comes back with only Ruth, when she comes back with her, she says, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. I went out full and I came back empty. Whose fault is that? Sure not God's fault. Because there were people who were in the land of famine who lived. 
They're still doing fine. Boaz is still doing fine. Everybody didn't starve in the famine. All right, things may get tough. You may not be making as much money as what you used to make. All right, that's not a reason to just up and move unless that's God's will. You start making money the leading of God in your life and you're going to find yourself going from a famine to even a worse situation. And that's what happened to them. That's what happens to Abraham right here. How many times God has intervened on our behalf. Thank God. In this, now that we've gotten after him a little bit, we see God's protection in the trouble. Because in this notice it says... uh, I already talked to you about what uh, he tells his wife to lie about him. You get down to verse uh, 15, and it says, The princes also of Pharaoh saw her, commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen, and he asses and men servants and maid servants, and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Because of Sarah, Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife. Take her and go thy way. You see, God intervenes. Abraham... Sadly, accepts riches from Pharaoh for his wife. Thank God God intervened. By the way, can you think of any decisions you've made in life that you look back on and say, boy, that was a bad decision, but God sure got us out of that mess. You know, I've always thought these people who say, you know, if I had my life to live over, I wouldn't change a thing. They're all, they already have Alzheimer's. <laughs> I mean, brother, if you're honest, you're going to have you're going to have some things you wish you hadn't have done, decisions you wish you hadn't have made, or you'd have made some other decision. Abram here has made a bad decision, but we see God's protection in this. But it cost him something because when he gets back in the land, yes, he's got Lot with him still but he doesn't have have Lot with him anymore. Because when he gets back, Lot and his herdsmen begin to complain about not having enough land for the riches that they got following Abraham. And now Lot, hey, he was supposed to separate from Lot anyway. Lot's not even supposed to be there. And Lot would have been better off had Abram separated from him. Instead, Here's Abram. He gives him a choice. Choose which way you want to. You go north, I'll go south. You go east, I'll go west. You, whatever way you go, I'll go the opposite way. And it's finally when he gets separated that that fellowship will begin back again with the Lord. God's protection during the time of trouble. And see, here's another thing he lost. Think of the impact that Egypt had on Lot. Because Lot being brought up in Abraham's house, God will say later of Abraham, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken unto him. 
He says, here's how Lot runs his house. Or here's how Abram uh, runs his house. So I'm going to tell him some things. I wouldn't tell him otherwise, but he's run his house right. Well, Lot was brought up in that house. But he makes a bad decision. It's amazing how many young people in fundamental churches, they get out of church and the first thing they do is they turn their tent towards Sodom. They're in MTV. They're going off to the movie theaters. They're going to the dances. They're going to places they've got absolutely no business going. They were brought up better. They were brought up cleaner. But they've missed it. Lot turning his tent towards Sodom. If you look at chapter 13 and verse 13, the Bible says, And the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners exceedingly. Lot should have known the difference. He had been taught better. So Abraham finds that his decision to go down to Egypt, no doubt, ends up influencing Lot toward the wrong way. The impact of Abraham's example had a lot that was uh, unfortunately detrimental for Lot. Anyway, so we see God's provision, God's promises, his presence, his protection. And then we see him back to the place of blessings. You get to verse 4, and it says, And under the place, well, let me read verse 3. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, under the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, under the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Oh, wow, if he would have just run back there first and not gone to Egypt. But he doesn't do that. But he's back. Thank God. You can come back to God. You can come back to where you were blessed before. What a great God we have. He doesn't get mad at you and say, well, all right, dummy, you made a dumb choice. Just stew in it for the rest of your life. No, you can come back if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a wonderful Savior. What a great God. Who loves us. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to be close to him. And he'll do that for us. Here's the thing. Understand though. It still had that impact on Lot. You can say well I can come back to God anytime. So you wait for that. Well okay. What impact is that going to have on your friends? What impacts are going to have on your family, on your children, on your wife or on your husband. Unfortunately, nobody comes out of those wrong decisions unscathed. You can be back right with God, but do you really want to live with that impact? Now, at this point, of course, Isaac has not been born. As a matter of fact, not even promised yet. That promise is coming in chapter 15. The application is this. All right, you may have lost something by a wrong decision, but God still has promises for you if you'll return to the promise. God has great promises for us in the Christian life. Let's claim them. I think part of our problem is we're trying to live happy in the world. We're trying to live contented in the world, and we weren't born again for the world. Our contentment has to be in our walk with God. If your contentment is in your walk with God, you don't have to win a $10 million court settlement in order to be happy. You don't have to win the lottery. You don't have to play the lottery. 
You don't have to have a lot of money. Just get your joy out of serving the Lord and claiming the many promises of our God. I read a story about a, an Indian chief by the name of Crowfoot. True story. He was a great chief of the Blackfoot Confederacy in southern Alberta, Canada. The Canadian Pacific Railroad went to him to try to get permission to build the railroad across Blackfoot land. And Crowfoot gave it. The one stipulation was that the railroad had to give Crowfoot a lifetime pass on the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Crowfoot took that pass. He put it in a leather pouch, tied it around his neck, and never used it. He could ride free anytime, and he never used it. Now, you say, preacher, what does that have to do with anything? He had a promise of free travel. He didn't take it. God's got so many promises for you in the word of God. Take him up on them. Find the promises in the word of God and take him up on the promises. The scripture says this, 2 Corinthians 7, 2. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Precious promises, great promises. We got a book that has all those promises recorded in it. They are ours. Take them. But don't just leave them in the book. Crowfoot, yeah, I I got the promises of God. Are you living them? Are you claiming them? I don't even know what they are. Well, get in and read it. The promises are there. God had promises for Abraham. He walked around in them for a while, and his time with God seemed very special because the altar was built In each place that he would go, but when he got to the place of famine, no altar, and he kept running further away. What a mistake he made. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and also verse 11, God tells us that these stories, true, are written for our admonition. Yes, Abram didn't have a Bible. But we do. And all those promises are there. What a shame to stand before Jesus one day and find out all those wonderful promises that you never took advantage of that were right there for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yes, even when he got out of your perfect will, even when he did that, you were still there. And you bailed him out. You helped him and he got back to where he could, he got back to the altar again. What a special God we have. Now, Lord, as you deal with hearts tonight, I pray, dear God, that there'd be some who come back to the altar. Some find themselves in a spiritual famine. They need to come back and 
to the altar and claim the promises of God that are so precious for us. And Lord, we'll praise you and thank you for what you do in our lives. In Jesus' name.